following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Where did Nathan escape to? Out of sight. Oh, there he is. I thought I'd better caution you, Nathan. Uh, Though our pastoral staff is absent, they did leave behind a preacher or teacher. And if you're too loose with how you use your freedom, you will become a sermon illustration. One of the uh, things that has happened in this church in recent years is that when Pastor Steve is gone, we depart from the regular series and we're involved in a special series which started some months back in First Thessalonians. And uh, Pastor Jed, I think, was the last one to speak in this series. And this morning, I have the privilege. So if you'll turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's pray as we open His Word together. Our Father, we are grateful that You have given us Your Word. That we haven't been left to flounder in the darkness But we've been left your revelation, a revelation of who you are, a revelation of what you have done in our lives. And Father, we come to you this morning as your children, your people. This is your church. And we want to hear your voice this morning. We pray, Lord, that your spirit will speak to us. As we open the Word and look into it, show us truth that we need to learn for our lives, that we might become the people that you desire us to be, that you might receive glory as the world around us watches and sees how you have transformed our lives. So Father, may you give us ears to hear this morning what your Spirit wishes to say to the church. Use it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was contemplating this message this morning, I was thinking that we can't even imagine what it would be like. Imagine for a moment that You're still in your teens. You've only been married a short time. You've just had your first child. When suddenly your town is invaded by armed men. You're forced to leave your home in the middle of the night and barely escape with your life. All because you've trusted Christ and are known as a Christian. 
You spend the next four years of your life in a refugee camp, scarcely enough to eat. Then you travel to a foreign country where you spend the next 15 years of your life with people who talk differently and who live in strange ways. All because you dared to follow Christ. We can't even imagine. And yet we do face rough times in our lives as well. We're so used to the easy life that we've lost sight of the struggles our brothers and sisters faced during the first century and that many of our brothers and sisters still face today. We don't realize, and we miss something because of it, we don't realize how much of the Scriptures, how much of the New Testament in particular, were written to the people of God in the midst of hard times while suffering for their faith. Much of the New Testament was written to help us face those hard times. We usually don't even contemplate all of the books that were written with that in mind. The book of Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, Revelation, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, even Philippians. You know, the joy book? Written while the people of God were facing incredible persecution for their faith. When Bible students today look at those books, uh, we tend to view them through the lens of the ivory tower. Because we live in an ivory tower. We've had a rather sheltered, not just rather, we've had a sheltered existence. We focus on our issues, theoretical issues, doctrinal issues rather than their issues, which were practical issues of survival in the midst of suffering for the name of Christ. We miss the point because we can't identify with what they're going through. Our Sudanese brothers and sisters understand these books better than we do. They get the point because they've lived through similar times to what those who received this book were living through. I will never forget living in Guatemala in the early 80s in the midst of the revolution and the guerrillas coming in. One day the guerrillas would come through and wipe out people and the next day the army would come through and wipe out people. You never knew where you're attack was going to come from. In the midst of that context, we preached from the book of James. And as we were teaching from that book to our brothers and sisters who were struggling, week after week, they would come back to us after we'd been talking about what James was saying in James. They'd come back to me and they would say, how did you know what we were going to go through this week? Because it's where they live. 
We have a hard time with that when we come to a book like 1 Thessalonians that's talking to our brothers and sisters in the midst of suffering for the cause of Christ. Well, we can't readily identify with that and we can't really understand even what it's saying because that's not what we're, where we are. Yet we do face our own brand of tough times. When life doesn't go the way we expect, we lose our job. We lose our family or a family member. Our house is underwater and we can't afford to pay the mortgage. We or someone we love is diagnosed with a fatal terminal illness. How do we respond to the hard times we face? Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to a church that was struggling, suffering for their faith. The Thessalonians get the point because it's life for them. The Thessalonian church was one of the first churches in Macedonia. We're not going to look at it this morning, but you can see their story in Acts chapter 16 and 17. The ministry there has been fruitful. People are responding to the gospel, responding positively, and the church is growing. The testimony concerning their transformed lives that everybody sees and everybody realizes that their lives have been changed, that transformed life leads to persecution. And the result of their suffering is that they feel alone. They're discouraged. Why doesn't God do something? They're questioning, why hasn't Paul come back to help us? He must not care about us. He must not care about what we're going through. Maybe he's afraid. He's trying to protect himself, so he's hiding out rather than coming to face what we're going through. Paul's purpose in writing is to assure them that he does care, that he loves them, but he wants them to understand the real issues. In the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, Paul reminds them of the relationship which is developed between them. Chapter 1, he gives thanks for their response to the gospel. Thanksgiving is described as part of looking at how they responded initially to him and why he would respond, return in love to them. Chapter 1, verse 2 is his thanksgiving. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Verse 3 describes their response to the gospel. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's thankful because when the gospel is preached, they receive it. Gratefully. And many of them have trusted Christ. 
verses 4 through 10, present the evidence of their election. Verse 4, he says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. How do we know that? Verse 5, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Verse 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers. Their changed lives become a testimony to the effect of the gospel in those who trust Him. Everyone's talking about it. They turn from pagan idolatry to worship and serve the true God. And one of the most striking things about these verses, sometimes because of the words, we we don't even note it. But even in the midst of great affliction, they have joy. That doesn't come easily. Verse 6, he says, you receive the word in much affliction with joy from the Holy Spirit. Only God can produce that kind of a response in the midst of affliction. Therefore, their, their, their transformed lives, their gratitude to God, their joy in the midst of affliction, all point together to demonstrate that these are people that God has transformed. They are chosen by God. And they're an example to everyone else. Chapter 2, he talks about the evidence of his concern for them. How did he demonstrate previously his concern for them? He reminds them of his attitude in his initial visit when he first came to them. He shows his concern by the way he serves them when he's in their midst. First six verses talk about his pure motives. He's faithful in spite of suffering. Verse 2, he says, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. When preaching leads to suffering, Paul doesn't try to escape it. If he were afraid, he never would have started ministry there in the first place. He's already suffered for it. Why would he start another place where he likely will receive that affliction again? He'd have run away at the first whiff of persecution. He didn't run away. He didn't try to escape. He wasn't afraid. And he wasn't avoiding them. Verses 3 and 4, he says that when he came, he was concerned about God's approval, not man's approval. Verses 5 and 6, he's sincere. He doesn't flatter. He doesn't seek praise for himself. Verses 7 through 9, he talks about his pure methods. 
In his methods, he's blameless. He demonstrates love for God's people. Like a mother cares for her children. Gentle display of love, concern. Sacrificial service, verses 8 and 9. uh, We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Verses 10 and 10 to 12, he talks about his pure life. You are witnesses in God also how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So he's careful to model spotless Christian conduct, like a mother caring for her children with love and gentleness, like a father concerned about his children's welfare, to guide them in a path worthy of God. And he concludes by telling them, you already know all that. I don't need to toot my own horn. I don't need to be telling you that. You already know that. And it's demonstrated by the way you responded to me when I came to you in the first place. You see, their response to Paul's ministry in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 2. As a result, they're convinced. They accept his message. They follow the example of the church of Judea and of Christ. The example of the prophets. And of Paul himself, they follow their example in suffering for their faith in Christ. Their response to him is evidence that they recognize his personal integrity and are convinced by it. Which brings us now to our passage for this morning, beginning with chapter 2, verse 17 where he answers their question. Is Paul trying to avoid us? Doesn't he care? Is he afraid and seeking to avoid persecution? He answers that question, verses 17 through 20. Now that he's reminded them of what went before, he explains the reason he hasn't come to visit them now. In summary, he tells them that he wants to come and visit. In fact, he keeps trying to come. Notice verse 17. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. His departure wasn't his choice. You go back to chapter 17 of the book of Acts, you discover there that he didn't voluntarily pack up and leave town. He didn't choose that. They were torn away. The separation was forced by circumstances beyond his, his control. And the word he uses for torn away there is a word that says we were orphaned. And that word sometimes is used of the child who is orphaned, but sometimes it's used of the parent who loses his children. And that's the sense that Paul is experiencing. He's been orphaned. He's 
been taken away from his family, those he loves, overnight. In Thessalonica, he was under attack and the brethren came and took him away in the middle of the night and led him out of town. But he wants them to know that physical separation, not being able to see each other face to face, doesn't change his love for them or his concern for them. They are not separated from his heart. In modern expression, Paul might well be saying, you are out of sight, but you are not out of mind. I haven't forgotten. These words are, are packed with emotion, demonstrating the level of his concern for them. Even so, he considers it a temporary separation. Verse 17 concludes, verse 18 begins, We endeavored the more eagerly, with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, personally, wanted to come to you again and again. He knows that going back means persecution. Yet, he keeps trying. So what happened to Paul's plan? Why couldn't he go back? There's opposition. There's an obstacle in the way. Verse 18 concludes, But Satan hindered us. Much like we read in the book of Daniel, how a messenger, an angelic messenger, was sent by God to communicate to Daniel. There was an obstacle in the way. And Paul says there's an obstacle in the way. Satan is blocking the way. We're not told how. Nothing in this passage indicates in what way Satan put up a roadblock. We don't know how he did it, but we know who did it. Satan, or Paul makes makes it very clear. There's no doubt who's responsible for the roadblock. Satan hindered us. But that doesn't change his concern for them. Why does he care so much? I love verses 19 and 20. Why would he care? What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord, before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Paul says, we have a vested interest in you. Why? Because we know the Lord's going to come. And when the Lord appears and we stand before the Lord, what is it that's going to give us greatest satisfaction in the Lord's presence? What are we going to be able to really celebrate when we stand before the Lord. Now theologically we have to say we know we're going to celebrate the fact that we're there at all. But there's something else that brings Paul joy. What will be our greatest joy? What will we be excited about? What will we brag about? Or present it as a crown at His feet? You will be our glory 
our joy, our crown to boast over. Therefore, be assured there is no reason we would just leave you hanging. We have every reason to genuinely care about you. This week was an interesting week for me to meditate on this passage. Because meditating on this passage to present God's Word at EV Free uh, grabbed my own heart. I'm reminded of our relationship with EV Free. A lot of you weren't here yet when we left 15 years ago. But when we look back on our years of ministry here, what we glory in, what we get excited about, isn't this building. Trust me. We certainly recognize that God gave us this building as a gift. But it's not this building that I get excited about. What is it that I get excited about? It's you. It's having had the privilege of investing in your lives and seeing God do His work in you. And Paul says, that's our glory. That's our joy. That's what we're going to celebrate. What God has done in people's lives and the fact that He's given to us the privilege of being part of that. And that's given us some wonderful memories. When Christ appears, we'll be excited as we look out over the crowd and see people that God has used us to make a difference in their lives. Therefore, we care what happens. You can't just turn it off and move away. You still care about those people. Paul cared about the Thessalonians. Chapter 3 begins with a temporary solution. Satan has blocked the road. He can't go. And yet he knows that they're crying for help. They're alone. They're, They're feeling abandoned. They're feeling cut off. They're hurting because of what they're going through. So Paul presents a temporary solution, knowing it will never satisfy them. And yet it will answer a major part of what they're going through. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved or shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand, we're about to suffer persecution. Just as it has come to pass, and as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news. It's the same word we we use when we talk about good news of the gospel. Timothy brings Paul good news about them. He's brought us good news of your faith and love 
reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you by your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. You state that slightly differently. This is living to see you standing firm in the faith. That's living. Verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return, pay back to God for you? For all the joy we feel on account of you before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is still lacking in your faith. Read this passage. And I consider how several weeks ago someone raised the question, how do we pray for for our Sudanese brethren. And I see in what Paul says in these words, a model that we could follow in praying for them. Pray the same things that Paul celebrates in the Thessalonians. Pray that in the midst of the hard times, they will respond as Paul celebrates in the life of the Thessalonians. Paul knows they won't be satisfied with a substitute. Yet he sends Timothy in his place to encourage them. They're shaken by their suffering. Like us, when tough times come, they question, where did we go wrong? Are we somehow outside of God's will? You ever gone through hard times and wondered that? Have we gotten out of God's will for our lives? Have we done something wrong? Has God abandoned us? They need someone with spiritual maturity to come alongside of them, to encourage them, to bring stability in the midst of the storm. They're they're new believers, not yet grounded in their faith. No one's there to instruct and encourage them. Satan's out to get them. They're at risk. So Timothy comes alongside to encourage them. Paul reminds them that he kept telling them before it ever happened that this was going to be the case. Persecution is coming. This is no surprise. Jesus had told his followers, in the world you will have tribulation. Paul even had to remind Timothy a few years later, those who seek to live godly will suffer persecution. Don't let it shake you. He isn't talking about the way we often see suffering. This isn't a brief period of persecution that the church will pass through and then go back to life as normal. Paul wants us to understand that the normal life for God's people is persecution. That's normal. We're the weird ones, as it were. Sometimes the church doesn't suffer much because we don't raise our godly profile enough. 
The devil and the world will try to knock God's people down when we take a stand for him. To the extent that our godly values conflict with our culture, we can expect to suffer because people won't like what they see. I fear that in the day in which we live, we're more likely to be seduced by our culture than we are to be persecuted by it. We must guard against the risk of being absorbed into the culture in which we live. Our values ought to conflict with the world around us. To the extent that they do, we can expect to suffer for our faith. Now there's a common, there's a couple of common threads I want to note this morning as we talk about this issue of addressing the persecution that the church is suffering. Like all persecution writers, Paul is concerned about our faith. The faith he's concerned about here is the daily commitment to trust God no matter what happens. Are we trusting Him in the midst of tough times? Are we trusting God in the dark? Are we clinging to Him when things don't go the way we think they ought to? He is not afraid they might lose their salvation. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, he made a clear statement. Your transformed life demonstrates clearly that God has chosen you. That's not what's at risk here. He's not afraid they're going to lose that. What he's concerned about is that daily, day-to-day trust in God. When we hit the rough times, when life doesn't go the way we think it ought to go, are we going to cling to Him and trust Him in the dark? It is possible that tough times might cause us to doubt that they might cause us, and sometimes do cause us, to lose our perspective. To wonder, can we really trust God today with what is going on in my life today? Oh, oh, I know He took care of Daniel back there. That's obvious. And I know He took care of the Thessalonians. Uh, History and, and the story tell us that. But will He take care of us in the midst of our hard times? Can we trust Him for that? The natural temptation in the midst of persecution is to try to escape it. To back off from a visible commitment to Christ so that they'll leave us alone. If we throw in the towel and give up, Satan wins. That's what He desires to do to us. He desires to bring us to the point where we throw it all over. Remember how Satan tried to tempt Job? Godly guy. Satan came after him, hoping to destroy his trusting God. We've watched many times as we've been at hospital beds of every kind you can imagine. Among the people of God, 
there are two major distinctions in the way people respond. Two people, same church, same Savior, no, no question of, of their trusting Christ and receiving eternal life, no doubt about that, yet their faith in the face of the pain may be vastly different. One may be bitter because of the pain, wondering what in the world does God think he's doing? Struggling to the end. He's not enjoying rest. Not enjoying peace. Another at peace because he knows he can trust God. He doesn't know where this is going to take him. He doesn't know that, but he knows who's taking him. And he knows he can trust him. And he focuses on a good God who still has a wonderful plan for his life expectant of what may come next in his walk with God. Hospital personnel observe that person and they can't figure him out. Doesn't make any sense. Can't understand that kind of faith. But through it, God is glorified. Satan is defeated. And those who trust Him rest. Look back at the times of persecution in the history of the church and you will discover every one of those times those two groups of people are out there. People who who have placed their faith in Christ, they've trusted Him. But when, when the heat rises and the pressure rises and the tension develops, some people are frustrated, confused, angry, because they can't believe God would let this happen to them. How can I trust a God who would let that kind of thing happen in my life? And others who, even in the midst of the hard times, realize we can trust Him, cling to Him. Now here's the major thing I want us to walk away with this morning. Paul wants us to come alongside of those who are suffering. As he sent Timothy, as he himself tried to do, he sent Timothy to do, and now the encouragement to us is that we come alongside and encourage one another to trust God, to rest in Him, even when we can't make sense out of what's going on. Timothy's going there, his visit, provides a temporary solution for their problems. He comes alongside of them. He encourages them. But there's another thing going on here. That is when Timothy comes back to Paul and tells him what's going on. Timothy, they are not the only ones who are encouraged. Timothy isn't the only one who's encouraged. Paul is encouraged when he sees what God is doing in their lives. Timothy brings good news. And Paul is glad to hear that even in great affliction, Timothy 
or, or they, they are standing firm in faith. They're trusting God in the dark even when they can't understand it. They aren't walking away out of a desire for self-preservation. They aren't throwing in the towel. And that encourages Paul. And he thanks God for them. And he promises he'll keep praying. Only God could give victory in the face of that kind of affliction. Frankly, only God can give victory in the kind of affliction you're facing. I don't even know what it is. But I know who does, and I know we can trust Him. And I know that the body of Christ, like Paul and like Timothy, can come together and encourage one another. God never promised that living the Christian life would be easy. In fact, he guarantees that it won't be. Every time I think of this, I think of that little song that we used to sing, every promise in the book is mine. Here's a promise I'd rather not take. Those who seek to live godly lives will suffer persecution. Therefore, it's crucial that when we face the hard times, we encourage one another. His concern is demonstrated by his prayer. He prays again, verse, chapter 3, verse 11, he prays again that he could go to them. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, please, Lord, direct our way to them again. He prays that in the midst of the affliction, their love for one another would multiply and overflow in an outpouring of concern for one another. Paul's already thanked God for their love for one another. That's been evident already. Now he prays that that love will multiply and spill over, overflow, in their concern for one another. James indicates that what usually happens is just the opposite of that. When I begin to suffer affliction, I turn inward. Hit my finger, the little thing, hit my finger with a hammer. I don't care if you don't like something that's going on with you. My finger hurts. I'm concerned about myself. Paul prays that in our times of suffering, we'll think of others first and watch out for their needs. Not only that, he prays that they'll show love not just to other believers, but to everyone. That everyone would include their persecutors. I'd suggest in what they're going through, that is not easy to do. And yet it's that very demonstration of love for persecutors that might convince the persecutor of the reality of their faith in Christ. The letter concludes with the destiny of those persecutors and it's not a pretty picture. But that's God's deal. God will take care of that. Our responsibility is to show love 
even when they don't deserve it, and even when they're making us suffer. Third thing he prays for in verse 13, that they would be strengthened so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Wants them and wants us to be strengthened so we might be found blameless in God's sight, strong in faith, strong in love, strong in holiness when Jesus comes. Now I'd like to look this morning at some lessons for us. The ways we suffer for our faith are different than that of the Thessalonians. It's different for us than it is from our Sudanese brethren. It's different for us than it is for brothers and sisters in the Middle East, the many things that they endure. However, as our culture moves farther away from our Christian heritage, it is likely that we too will experiment or experience such persecution like the Thessalonians suffered. The affliction we suffer right now is sort of a subtle kind of thing. It's kind of indirect. We feel the pressure, but most of us don't really suffer greatly from persecution. But the reality of that persecution is growing every day. Some have calculated that more people have died for faith in Jesus Christ in the 20th century than died in the previous 19 centuries put together. And observing trends in the world today, that trend is only increasing. It's not getting any better. Would not surprise me as we approach the end of the 21st century, which is a little ways off yet, but we will probably be making a similar comparison between the 21st century and the previous 20 centuries combined. Let's not deceive ourselves thinking we'll escape. So here's some principles that I think apply to our lives today, whether it be in the face of the subtle pressure or just the suffering that life brings under under the control of our Lord, or whether it be suffering persecution for our faith. Here's some principles that I think we ought to draw from this passage. First of all, Satan's plan is to use the hard times to destroy our trust in God. Satan has his way. When we go through hard times, we will walk away, throw in the towel, and leave it all. Because it isn't worth it. Satan plans to use the hard times to destroy our trust in God. Second, This is one we really need to get hold of. Satan's plan involves keeping us isolated from each other when times are hard. Satan's plan is that each of us look out for ourselves. The repeated theme in persecution literature is that when times are hard, we need each other. 
more than ever. In our uh, adult training classes, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews. The application portion begins in chapter 10, verse 19. The primary application is found in verses 23 to 25 of Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, he desires us to hold on to what we believe. But then he goes on and tells us how we do that. We do that by coming together by hanging together, by encouraging one another to consider how we can stir up one another to love and good works. Not abandoning the fellowship, the community of believers, not abandoning the people, but rather coming together to encourage one another. Satan spares no effort. To put up roadblocks to that. To keep us isolated. To get us to avoid God's people. Paul says, Satan blocked the way. Ever noticed how it works most of the time when we're going through hard times? What happens in our lives? I don't feel like going to church today. This has been a rough week. I don't feel like going. You ever find yourself saying that? Quite frankly, that thought comes from Satan who desires to put a roadblock between us and our brothers and sisters, because God's design is that we encourage one another. And if we don't get together, there's no way you can encourage me. If I don't feel like it, and I stay home, then who's going to come alongside me and encourage me to hang in there, to trust God in the midst of the hard times? That's Satan's strategy, to get in the way, to keep us apart, so we won't come together. To encourage one another. When we need each other most is the very time that we avoid one another. God wants to bring us together to encourage one another. Satan wants to isolate us. Third grows out of the second. God uses his people to encourage us when the going gets tough. Paul wants to go to them to encourage them in their affliction. He's trying to get together with them so they can help each other out, so they can hang in there together. And this isn't just a unilateral encouragement. They will encourage each other. As Paul sees God working and encouraging them through him, he is encouraged by them. 
And we are built up and encouraged together. That's what our community groups ought to do for us. When we come together and share our lives with each other, we ought to be encouraged by hearing, as I hear what God is doing in your life, I ought to be able to get excited about that. If we don't get together, we're not going to get that. You think you're going to get that in a group this size? Tell me the names of 50 people here this morning. Tell me what 20 of them are going through in their lives right now. I know what a few of you are going through, but I don't know what most of you are going through. But on the community level, our community groups, that's what they're for. So we get together and share our lives so we can all be encouraged by it. And if you're avoiding those groups, you're missing out on that blessing. You see, God designed the church to overcome Satan's attempt to destroy our faith in tough times. Ephesians 4 tells us God gave us gifted leaders to encourage us to be all He wants us to be, to build us up, to make us what He desires. And as we use our gifts to encourage one another, we minister to one another, and we overcome Satan's attempt to destroy our trusting God. Fourth, as the community hangs together, encourages one another, Satan is defeated and God is glorified. That's why God wants us to stick together. That's also why Satan wants to isolate us. We need each other. We must hang together. And encourage each other in the hard times. That's the only way we'll survive. Quite frankly, I don't have a clue what tomorrow holds. Not even for myself, much less for you. But the future is undoubtedly going to involve some hard times for all of us. Whether it be from persecution, illness, family struggles, there will be hard times. Will we we be prepared for the hard times because we've learned to hang together in the good times? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gift to the body of Christ. May we invest the abilities which you've given to us in encouraging one another that together we may become all that you desire us to be. That together we may stand firm under the pressure of affliction in the midst of the hard times. that ultimately Satan will be defeated in his attempt to destroy our faith. And you will be glorified. 
Lord, would you take your word this morning and apply it to each of our hearts that you may be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.